back to Full Force, the most accurate podcast, and happy Cinco de Mayo to everyone celebrating out there. As always, I'm your host, John Daigle, joined today by friend in life, John Paulson. And John, I know you are headfirst, deep right now, into projections post-NFL draft for everyone. Yes, I'm in the rankings cave, as I call it, and uh, <laughs> peeking my head out to uh, join you for an hour worth of, of uh, fantasy talk about the draft. Looking forward to it. We are hoping it's an hour because it is a jam-packed show. And with the top 10 developments, top five winners, top five losers, however you want to phrase it, these, I think, are the top 10 most important takeaways for fantasy that's important from the draft. And I want to start with my first winner. And you saw these. You did not get to tell me to cancel them if you do not believe so, which I, which is why I'm very excited to get your points on these because my first winner is the future wide receiver market and there are a lot of steps to unravel with this one and it's because let's start with aj brown for instance because the titans offense now following the aj brown trade what we know is that a league high 67 percent of targets were vacated from last year i updated it saturday morning once the trade went down plus 22 targets another league high inside the 10 yard line all missing from last year. And when you look up and down this roster, Robert Woods coming off of November's torn ACL is legitimately the only option, I believe, that might threaten Traylon Burks for the leading target show from target share from Ryan Tannehill. Yeah, I think this is uh this is the story or one of the stories coming out of the draft is is how these targets in Tennessee are gonna be divvied up, how the targets in Philly, you know, are gonna be divvied up. Um Traylon Burks seems like he's going to have a floor of about 120 targets. It's hard to maybe 110, 120 mm-hmm. targets. Um, just just looking at the situation with Robert Woods, uh, his knee injury. When is he going to be back? If he's if he's back for camp, then this things get this will get really interesting because you know I have some questions about Burks being completely pro ready and ready for this sort of role, um, but. If he's if 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 Woods he being Woods is not 100 percent or is you know if he going into camp then it just looks like Burks is going to be the wide receiver one from the get go and that means a big role. I think the other other guy that sort of is flying under the radar is Austin Hooper. Um, he you know he had a really two really good seasons in Atlanta uh, before signing that big deal in Cleveland and then was sort of part of a committee there, you know for no real good reason I guess. But now he's landed in Tennessee where they really need him this year. Like they, they need some, you know, solid pass catchers because the, the depth chart after Woods, after Burks is pretty thin there in Tennessee. Of course, the player, they shipped out A.J. Brown, now in the Eagles offense. And before we discuss how A.J. Brown fares from Jalen Hurts in that offense, I quickly want to step back and just analyze the Eagles draft because on the surface, they only made five picks. But when you take a big picture view of their draft class. It's really those first three players they added with high capital in rounds one, two, and three, Jordan Davis, Cam Jurgens, and Kobe Dean. And then you have to factor in that AJ Brown is basically a part of this draft class. Also a 2023 first and 2024 second pick that they basically got from that pick swap before the draft from new Orleans, which makes it really at the end, a master class from Howie Roseman on how to consistently get the most out of your draft capital. But we now know that A.J. Brown will be playing alongside Devonta Smith with Jalen Hurts. So how do you see this offense, a run-heavy one nonetheless, shaking out? 
Yeah, I would say certainly Jalen Hurts is one of the quote-unquote winners out of this draft, even though he didn't really get any skill players added um, as rookies. I mean, we got A.J. Brown now. He's got like one of the best receiving cores in the league. A.J. Brown, Devonta Smith, uh, Dallas Goddard. Quiz Watkins is a pretty good uh, third receiver probably for them. Jalen Rager, they're kind of, it seems like they're trying to give up on or they may be giving up on. But I mean, from one through three plus a tight end, that's a pretty strong group. And they've got some pass catching uh, running backs as well. So uh, Hertz is really set up uh, for success this year. And I, you know, I haven't looked at his ADP yet, but um, you know, if he's sort of going in that uh, mid QB one to low end QB one range, he's going to be a nice value there. Where do you put AJ Brown? I don't know if you've gotten to this in your rankings behind the scene just yet, but where do you fit AJ Brown? Because when I look at this offense, for me, it's it's pretty simple. And the fact that Devontae Smith last year was already frustrating enough as the wide receiver 43 in fantasy points per game. And I don't think he can excel further since we now have a superior talent. We expect to lead the team in targets around him, right? Like, I don't think he goes forward because of A.J. Brown. And so for me, it always comes back to, well, if I think this offense can only support one wide receiver alongside Dallas Goddard, it's going to very clearly be A.J. Brown if he falls into the right ADP. Yes, and uh, I think you know, I think you're right. AJ Brown is better than Devonta Smith. It doesn't mean that Devonta Smith can't take a second year leap forward in terms of his skill and his ability. Um, but in order for this offense to support two good receivers plus Dallas Goddard, if you're looking at three primary fantasy pass catchers, um, Jalen Hurts really has to take a step forward and grow the pie, uh, the passing pie. It can't it can't be this kind of run heavy. Uh, offense that we saw last year it's, it's not going to support that many players so I think you're exactly right on that uh, this trade is not good necessarily for Devonta Smith I mean it'd be better for him if it was just him and Goddard as the primary two primary options um, so you know looking just to this year I mean you like Devonta Smith like long term he's a good player and I think he's got a bright future but this is is taking you know eating his lunch money a little bit unless Hertz is really able to maybe increase that passing pie by 10 or 20%. Then there's a chance. Um, as far as AJ Brown, he only had 105 targets last year, um, 106 the year before. He's been, you know, kind of dinged up both seasons. Um, has finished, uh, you know, he's a, he's a touchdown maker. He went over 1,000 yards twice, but really hasn't put together a full 16 game, 16, 17 game season since his rookie year. And I, I think going from uh, Ryan Tannehill to Jalen Hurts is a little bit of downgrade in uh, the quality of his targets. And unless they could get on the same page right away, which I think they, I think I saw a picture of them at Disneyland. So that's, <laughs> that's a good sign. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you think this is a little bit of a downgrade for AJ Brown as well, because he doesn't have that rapport built in with, with Hurts. They are best friends and other best friends as winners in the wide receiver market, the future wide receiver market is also Marquise Brown because it's genuinely the perfect fit. This is why they are rumored to trade up for Jameson Williams, the Cardinals were, because they needed this exact type of player. Kyler Murray, of course, completed a league high 49% of his passes, 20 plus yards downfield last year, and Brown commanded a team high in air yards from Baltimore the past two seasons. Brown, of course, 24 years old, also under contract for only $7.75 million over the next two seasons, which is 
great considering the current wide receiver market. And so overall, I think it's a tremendous win for Marquise Brown. So how do you see this offense shaking out, including the six games that DeAndre Hopkins is now expected to miss? Yeah, and you know, Kyler Murray and uh, Marquise Brown know each other uh, well uh, from their days in college. And this is shaping up not only just Brown moving to Arizona and, and now playing, you know, being happy and playing with one of his old, old teammates, but now Hopkins is sitting out for the first six weeks and there isn't a ton of competition there for him. They want to get Rondell more, more targets, but he's more of a line of scrimmage type guy where that's not Marquise Brown's game at all. He's more of a, a deep intermediate to deep threat. So it's, I guess it's AJ green is the, is he still on the roster? I think they re-signed him for a year. They um, re-signed him. Yes. So he's, he's probably their primary, his primary competition right now, early in the season, you know, when Hopkins comes back, things will get a little dicey. You got, you know, Zach Ertz at tight end, who's probably a six, five to six target, a per game player and if Hopkins comes back to his usual nine to ten targets uh, then things might get you know pinched a little bit for Brown but he might have already established himself as a you know pretty clear option for for Kyler Murray by that point he's going to be the number one receiver for the first six weeks so you know that's probably not going to go away just just because Hopkins comes back we should also remember that Zach Ertz averaged 8.3 targets in the eight games he played without Hopkins last year compared to four and a half in the four starts he made when the two overlapped. I know they added Trey McBride in the second round, but also remember, before Kyle Pitts, rookie tight ends, we know we can completely gloss over in fantasy. They just don't make an impact because there's too much to learn at the next level. Trey McBride is not someone who gets in the way of Zach Ertz, at least in year one. Year two, next offseason, let's have this conversation again. But until then, take the ADP dip, in my opinion, on Zach Ertz. But with the Ravens and trading Marquise Brown, that also means we need to sift through Baltimore's offense and the leftovers pieces because with their draft, what I think is happening, John, is that they're telling us that Lamar Jackson's career high, 32 pass attempts per game from last year, five more than his previous career high, was a fluke. That's not supposed to be the plan. Uh, that was just happenstance, I believe, after multiple starting running backs went down prior to week one, followed by both trenches crumbling due to the injuries on defense, and then them having to hinge on backups in their secondary, which naturally forced an uptick in negative game scripts and passing volume. That's not what they want, and they showed us that with their first four picks two being on defense, including number 14 overall pick, the number one safety by numerous front offices in this class, Kyle Hamilton, also adding center Tyler Linderbaum at the end of the first round. And with all that plethora of fourth-round selections they made, two tight ends in the fourth round as well, which is pretty respectful capital to start day three. And so overall, when I'm sifting through the Ravens' passing attack, I do think we should be high on Rashad Bateman for – probable target volume but overall i just keep going back to the idea that they don't want last year to ever happen again with lamar jackson i mean if you look back at what he did in 2019 and 2020 you know 401 pass attempts in 15 games in 2019 376 pass attempts uh in 15 games in 2020 i think that's what they want but i mean he had 36 touchdowns and 26 touchdowns uh, pass uh, passing touchdowns in those two seasons so they could this can still be a pretty healthy passing attack it just needs to be more efficient and lower volume uh, I think you're right though they're probably going to get back to sub sub 30 pass attempts per game uh, they, they went well above that last year and it was sort of out of desperation due to the lack of uh, running attack but they got Dobbins back they got uh, Gus Edwards back so they're in pretty good shape as a you know a, 
to run the ball. Um, I think you're looking at Rashad Bateman though, and Mark Andrews with this with this Marquise Brown move. Uh, they both look pretty safe to me, even though it's going to be low volume. The, the offense is going to go through Bateman and uh, and Andrews. So I think they're both pretty good picks this year. Another winner, I believe, from the draft is Josh Allen's completion rate. Because remember how they responded to two high safeties, which basically made the uh, their Bills offense below league average for the first 11 or 12 games heading into the playoffs. They then said, screw this. We're going to give Devin Singletary 17 carries per game over his last six starts, even though Devin Singletary is really just an analogy of they needed a running game, and he's the one who was there for them. Uh, they purposely schemed Josh Allen for an increased nine scrambles per game because, again, they needed a way to attack underneath. Now enter James Cook, who never had more than 12 carries in a single game in college. We're not expecting him to do that at all. But more importantly, register just a single drop on 74 career targets as a matchup-based option Georgia used to throw out there in one-on-one -on -one situations against opposing linebackers because he has the 40 speed to beat them. And so I think that's what is going to help Josh Allen is that now they can still keep the ball in his hands and allowing him a, another option to pass to underneath. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think it's just Cook. I mean, Cook's a an obvious beneficiary. This is the role that they were uh, trying to give J.D. McKissick until he decided to go back to Washington. Um, and clearly they're not, they weren't happy. I mean, just give their, all their actions here have indicated that they weren't happy with Singletary's pass catching. Um, this doesn't, this isn't an indictment necessarily of Singletary on first and second down. It's just, uh, they want more juice, out of, you know, out of the, as out of their running backs as a receiver. And Zach Moss is okay at it. Um, they brought in Duke Johnson, who's pretty good at it. Um, but it's probably going to be James Cook there on third downs. And then I think, you know, the other way that they're looking to attack underneath, they did lose uh, Cole Beasley, but they they re-upped uh, Isaiah McKenzie, who was great in that one game where Beasley uh, was out. I think he had double-digit catches. Uh, they also signed Jamison Crowder, uh, and then they got Khalil Shakir in the fifth round. So these are some other ways, along with O.J. Howard in free agency, these are some other ways to attack underneath if uh, – if that's what they're going for, which it does seem like they are. Just in an effective way to move the ball. Also, as someone who's been dabbling now, especially an underdog with best ball million opening up, two million to the top, one million to second place, absolutely insane and fun. Uh, I'm still very high as well, higher than consensus on Stefan Diggs apparently. And if you allow me the soapbox really quick, I just want to say that, remember, in 2020, he was a mid-fifth round pick ahead of his first season with Josh Allen, and he responded with leading the league in targets, catches, and receiving yards as the wide receiver three in fantasy points per game. And he did so without any downfield production, right? Just 9% of the targets were earned 20-plus yards downfield. But fast forward to last year, when everyone was improperly drafting him too high, even though we knew regression was coming, and what happened? Of course, he regressed in overall scoring, but the volume surprisingly was still there. 9.7 targets per game. Uh, his explosive downfield rate, 20-plus yards deep, jumped from that 9% rate to 17%, and he led the entire league with 22 end zone targets, but finished as the wide receiver 10 in fantasy points per game. And now, all of a sudden, everyone's pushing him down to wide receiver 7 to 9 somewhere, when really, like in my opinion, he should be in the same tier as Devontae Adams because we're not drafting last year's stats. We should now be banking on the fact that he did get that volume and didn't score according to that volume. And so I do think it translates over, and I want to be higher on the field than Stephon Diggs. Uh, where is he going right now? Like, what, what, 
position. He's the, at, he's the wide right. receiver seven or nine. He's going sometimes. So honestly, I haven't even had a chance to see his ADP is at the first round turn. Typically uh, I am usually drafting him. This is, this is probably it's too early in the off season for a hot take, but I've been drafting him over Devonte Adams right now. I think that's reasonable. Uh, and I think the other player that we haven't talked about yet with the bills and he's been, a hot topic is Gabriel Davis. I think he's a good pick as well. I, I have to look at these ADPs. I'm not at that point yet in the offseason, but there's just a ton of talent in this offense. And you can say, well, you know, one, one of these guys is going to miss out. And I think it's probably going to be this competition at the slot, you know, McKenzie, Crowder, Shakir. Uh, I don't think it's going to be Diggs missing out. I don't think, I think Knox has, you know, showed last year that he's a tight end one fantasy wise. He's always been a real good athlete and kind of put it together uh, last season. Um, and then, you know, the running backs are probably going to be divvying up a, a smaller pie and Singletary doesn't look as appealing, but I think Diggs Davis um, are, are going to be solid. Uh, they're they're going to continue to attack outside, even though they want to uh, work the middle and work underneath a little bit more to, to deal with the, what the defenses were doing last year. Um, I, I don't know where Davis is going. I, I th- he feels to me like he's a seventh, eighth rounder and pretty, a pretty solid pick there. He is around that range because like Albert O, uh, he's the one player everyone's on top of. Like, remember the last time we saw Gabriel Davis play, he had over 200 yards receiving in prime time. Like, that doesn't fly under the radar for anyone in fantasy. So, yeah, underdog's pretty on top of him. Moving on, though, another winner, I believe, from the draft is Dallas's pass play rate. Because, in my opinion, no team plummeted more in available talent in their roster this offseason than the Cowboys who think they can replace Randy Gregory, for instance, with Dorrance Armstrong full-time, stick a 21-year-old developing Tyler Smith at left guard without missing a beat, I guess, in place of Connor Williams, and then move on from Amari Cooper and Cedric Wilson with a recovering Michael Gallup, who we're not even sure if he's going to be ready for week one just yet, and some machination of James Washington and Jalen Tolbert, Jalen Tolbert, who I do like. Not to mention, remember, this defense also led the league in turnovers last year, and that's like the least sticky stat possible that doesn't translate from year to year. And all of that tells me that we need to be higher on their passing game because they will have no choice inevitably but to throw the ball more since they are a shell of themselves in a division that basically got better in all other with all other three teams in that division. Yeah, I was wondering where you're going with that with the, all the offensive line talk, but you you landed where I kind of thought you might, which is that the the passing game is is pretty strong still. They have a very good quarterback. Um, CD Lamb's obviously a, a top tier type receiver. I think this is really an interest like interesting situation, and it's not just Michael Gallup, but there's a, quite a few guys that are coming off of ACL tears, and we have to like gauge where they're going to be at week one. Uh, and like Gallup was injured very late in the year. And there's no guarantee that he's going to be back. So, you know, in time for even September, the first four weeks of the season, he might miss more than that. So we just have to sort of monitor these guys and see how far along they are in the progression. But you're looking at that offense, the wide receiver, if, if Gallup is out, the wide receiver, wide receiver, two spots wide open. It's either James Washington or Jalen Tolbert, Tolbert, I would think. And I think Tolbert is probably um, has the inside track. I mean, he's a really good route runner. I was hoping that uh, he might land with the Packers. Um, but didn't. Uh, and you look at you look at James Washington. He had his moments in, in Pittsburgh, but then they just drafted Chase Chase Claypool and Deontay Johnson, and then he just sort of went to fell to the wide receiver four, wide receiver five spot there in Pittsburgh. So can he get his career back on track? So that 
to me, if you're looking at some value at the end of drafts, or I don't know where Tolbert's going to end up going, but Washington's not going to be drafted very high. Watch this, watch this Tolbert Washington battle. They might both be playing in, you know, starting in September in three receiver sets. And if they are, then they both could produce. But yeah, I really want to know who's going to survive the return of Michael Gallup and be on the field for three receiver sets. And that that player is probably going to be a very good value late in drafts. For immediate return in redraft leagues, not dynasty, but redraft league short term, it really wouldn't be shocking, in my opinion, if Jalen Tolbert outscored a Garrett Wilson this year solely by rookies because Tolbert genuinely has the better situation. Like there's arguably no competition there if Michael Gallup is out. And as we mentioned, with a defense we expect to descend this year, they have no choice but to throw the ball more. So that was my initial thought on draft day as well, is that, wow, like I didn't expect Tolbert, who I like as well, to land at a good spot, but it is actually a really good spot for fantasy purposes. Yeah, and I think Dalton Schultz is is really is really safe. And I, I did see that his ADP is really high. I mean, I think he's tight end five or something like that right now. So it's not like you're going to get a bargain on him. But he's he's a very, like after that top tier of uh, tight ends, he's a very safe option there. He's going to see the same, same amount of targets as he saw last year. Another winner is the Colts playoff chances because the immense upgrade, immense, from Carson Wentz to Matt Ryan, who will now be playing behind the best offensive line of his career, overshadows all the other terrific moves this team made this offseason and adding Stephon Gilmore to their secondary and adding Yannick Ngakwe to the edge. And as we saw over the weekend, more importantly, finally adding explosiveness and juice to the lineup rather than trotting out T.Y. Hilton for the third consecutive year. Like Alec Pierce, their day two wide receiver, is the perfect complement to Michael Pittman and that he averaged nearly a 17-yard depth of target for his career at Cincinnati translating like that's he literally deadlifts 675 pounds and translated that to the field with a 41 inch vertical at 632 to 11 and 92nd percentile broad jump which as we know that is a drill at the combine that translates to explosiveness and then take their third round tight end they added in Jelani Woods who at 67269 is literally the most athletic tight end to test at the combine ever and the history of the combine occurring and so all this gets back to me, and I think this is the best team in the AFC South. Like, and I think it spells a massive year for Michael Pittman. Yeah, I think this this draft went really well for Pittman. Uh, not only the draft, but obviously getting Matt Ryan in is a, is an upgrade over what he was enjoying. Uh, and I use the word enjoying loosely uh, last <laughs> year from from Carson Wentz. And you just look at their depth chart; it's 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 going to be a lot of Pittman. Uh, Pierce's. I think a good addition. He's uh, I actually played basketball, uh, AAU basketball with his uncle uh, mm. back in Wisconsin, uh, which is a weird connection. Um, and uh, he's, uh, as you mentioned, super athletic, more of a deep threat right now. Uh, maybe he can develop a little bit more as a route runner and become uh, a full three, you know, full face type player type receiver, but it's going to be a lot of Pittman and it's going to be a lot of Matt Ryan to Michael Pittman. Uh, the tight end situation is kind of, you, know, you mentioned Jelani Woods. I think he's pretty raw, uh, and we also can't trust rookie tight ends. So I think you're, you're probably looking at Moelle Cox as sort of a sleeper at the tight end position this year. They do have Kylan Granson as well, who's um, uh, sort of a receiving tight end there that played some for them last year. Um, but there's not, just not a lot of target hogs in this offense right now. So I think Pittman is a very safe you know, wide receiver two type that uh, you know, probably will be you know, available probably into the fourth round. Uh, I would have to think uh, that he's not going earlier than that. 
Uh, and then, you know, Naheem Hines will get, catch some passes. Paris Campbell, if he's healthy, if he can stay healthy, yes. Um, but there's just not a ton of competition for Pittman. And even Pierce coming in is probably a nice compliment for him because he's going to clear out a lot of space for Pittman to work. Pittman also a big Mount Harmon guy, correct? Grades out well in reception perception. Yeah, um, Pittman is one of his favorites. So and that, that that gives me confidence. You're looking at these players and you're sort of wondering if these second, third year players are good. I love seeing uh, reading Matt's uh, charting and, and you know looking at the data and seeing where they fall because if they if they're due for a bigger role or if they're an ascending player and they're they score really well in his charting, then I feel pretty confident ranking them pretty high. And last but not least, my final winner is probably one that confused you. It is two-headed backfields. And that's because the same discussions, Paul Paulson, that are happening right now are literally the discussions we've had for at least the last three years. Probably goes beyond that. But just think about when Carlos Hyde sat in front of Nick Chubb whenever Chubb was drafted. Whenever Marlon Mack was supposedly in the way of Jonathan Taylor's workers' role. Like, there's so many other examples I could point to whenever a talented running back lands in a situation where it's basically only one other person, where everyone tries to sift through the backfield and analyze it, and they just end up overanalyzing it because the point at the end of the day is just bet on talent. And right now with Brees Hall and Kenneth Walker, I think you can buy ADP dips and redraft leagues and best ball and bet on talent. Uh, even if it's the other one, Rashad Penny, for instance, or Michael Carter that comes through, we're going to have more than enough op- opportunities to get both. I think you just buy in to whatever the ADP suggests we do. And again, bet on talent. Yeah, I suppose it's, you know, bet on talent. It's easy to say if you don't, but it depends on who you think is the talent. Uh, I think Brees Hall's, yeah, I, mean, I think Brees Hall is, uh, I think there's, they're, they're declaring i mean michael carter did pretty well last year when he had the opportunity but i don't think they i don't think the jets view him or you know scouts view him as as good as Brees hall so but i think carter is good enough that he's going to be a thorn in Brees hall's side i don't i don't you know i don't think this is a situation where you're waiting for for you know hall to beat out carter as a starter i think he's probably going to be the starter it's just how much uh, work is, is carter going to have that's the question so if it's a 60 40 you know, that's not as good as if it's 7030 or at 8020, like we're hoping for some of these stud running backs from like a you know Jonathan Taylor um, situation where we were just waiting for that that sort of workload to happen. And once once it happened, you knew he was gonna be in the RB1 top five type ranks. Um I, this Jets offense is still you know trying to find its footing, you know, and they, they did add some receiving talent, but I don't know that this is if that hall is going to be like this, you know, guy who's going to break out as a rookie. I think this is a before you talk about Kenneth Walker, sorry to cut you off. It just sucks so much because I keep coming back to this Jets roster too. And it's a great roster, honestly, especially now you get all Matt Gardner to like play a role they didn't even need that can help Salah's defense so much. It's just the issue. It keeps coming back to the same two questions, right? It is, is Makai Becton going to be there at week in week one? And is Zach Wilson going to develop? So like, so like no matter how much talent we see, and they literally like the Broncos the last couple of years where they had all the talent around them. They just needed a quarterback. It literally just comes back, back to Wilson and how he develops in year one. That's what's frustrating, as I'm sure you ran into over the weekend trying to parse through Garrett Wilson and Elijah Moore. Like, how do all these players get there? They can't. Yeah, I'm at the point in my projections process where I've, I've got the team projections done. I do a top-down analysis, and then – then I start look, divvying this stuff up, and I'm not at the divvying up point. And that's the problem: is that you're, you're looking at these backfields, and you're like, "Well, how's this going to shake out?" You know, you know, you know, Brees Hall specifically will 
very likely lead that backfield in touches if he's healthy. Um, but how much of a role does Carter have? And I think the same question can be uh, posed with Rashad Penny, who had just, he finished the season on fire last year and they brought him back, I think on a one-year deal, didn't like commit a ton of money to him or anything, but it looked like he was going to come in. Uh, you know, maybe Chris Carson would be there as well. Um, but now with this Kenneth Walker pick, you're wondering, how, you know, is Carson's health even a, a factor? Is he going to be a factor this year, Chris Carson? But it's Penny and Walker, so how does this shake out? And, you know, I look at what Penny did late last year, and I'm thinking, well, he's got to come in as the de facto starter, but that doesn't mean that he holds a job for the year. And the, and the way that the Seattle team is run, I mean, they try to be run heavy, and this offense now is going to be pretty ugly, it looks like, given the quarterback situation. I mean, um, you know, Drew Locke, they have two good receivers to throw to, but and, and a good tight end with Noah Fant. But I mean, I don't know that Drew Locke is the answer. Uh, Geno Smith apparently is in the running to start, and then they've been linked to Baker Mayfield as well. And I do think that Baker Mayfield would probably be the best option for this entire offense. Doesn't make him a great option, but it would be the best option. So I just don't know how many touchdowns they're going to score. I don't know how many rushing touchdowns they're going to get. I don't know how many carries inside the 10 they're going to get. This is just a different animal now with with Russell Wilson out of the way. Um, and then you're looking at Penny Penny versus Walker specifically, and there's not to me there's not a clear winner in talent uh, given the way that Penny finished. I mean, he showed a lot last year, uh, and, but can he stay healthy is the big question with Rashad Penny. And we know why they ended up drafting Kenneth Walker because they saw Rashad Penny in him. Like Jonathan Taylor and Penny, it was Walker who also – got the most yards after contact per carry four and a half for a running back with 250 plus carries in a season. Like they profiled them as the same explosive runners. But as you mentioned, whenever Geno Smith, who is reportedly in the lead in this competition, I guess is what we call it right now, before they make a potentially Baker Mayfield deal, like what does that offense really turn out to be? Is there enough room for two explosive running backs? Because how often will you be in a position to even run the ball? So that's what I keep coming back to. That's why I worry. That's why I still struggle to to pull that button on underdog on both DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. Because at the end of the day, like who survives? How do we even get there with this offense? Yeah, this might be one of these. I mean, you look at their win total. It, it just everything is pointing to just a bad season for the Seahawks. And uh, I think this offense is going to struggle unless they make an uh, upgraded quarterback or if somebody like Drew Locke or Geno Smith can somehow provide like mid level quarterback play like NFL mid-level play I don't see it like this looks like a bottom five bottom three quarterback situation and that's going to affect the entire offense the Seahawks are actually the perfect segue to take a break and come back with our top five disappointments post-draft stay tuned right now if you sign up at underdog as a new subscriber not only will you receive a free pro subscription to 444 with access to all of our off-season content including our around the clock discord conversations underdog will also match your deposit up to hundred dollars by 100 percent literally mirror it and there are no catches just download the underdog app use the promo code 444 when depositing that's the number four word the number again and presto a reminder before we move on, it is a new era here at the Most Accurate Podcast. We are bringing you consistently two episodes per week, every Monday night and Thursday morning. So make sure to rate, review, and subscribe because that goes a long way in helping us and knowing exactly what you like because that's what we want to hear. Anyways, though, let's continue on with our top five biggest disappointments from the post-draft. And for me, it starts with the Chiefs' watchability. 
because everything this team has done this season, whether it be adding a between-the-tackles grinder like Ronald Jones, prioritizing defenders at the top of the first round with Trent McDuffie and George Karlaftis over their making over making their first wide receiver selection or essentially trying to replace Tyreek Hill with Sky Moore. And I do think Sky Moore can actually develop into an, a threat at every level. But with the evidence we have from his collegiate performance, led the nation in yards on slant routes last year and accrued 85% of his career targets within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. That all tells me the Chiefs are doubling down on that same boring offense that allowed Patrick Mahomes to lead the league in passing yards after the catch last year as a response to two high safeties over the second half of the season, which also allowed the Chiefs to win nine of their last 10 regular season games. So it's no surprise they're going back to that. Except this year, Paulson, they are projected to face the league's toughest schedule of opposing defenses, including their three random pools of out-of-division games being the Bengals, Bills, and Bucks. So the Chiefs are facing uphill already. How do you see this wide receiver courts with a uh, a ton of different guys thrown in there. How do you see it shaking out? Well, I think that they gave a lot of money to Marquez Valdez-Scantling, and he got more guaranteed than Juju Smith-Schuster, I believe. And I think I think Smith-Schuster is probably the safest option in terms of other, you know, other than Travis Kelsey, who who did get a bump up with uh, Tyreek Hill being traded. I think Juju's probably going to be second in line for targets, and then MVS is probably third. And then, you know, more will be competing with uh, Nicole Hardman, uh, Josh Gordon, Justin Ross, uh, those types of guys. But I think more is the, is, is the best player. I think he's already better than Nicole Hardman, who hasn't shown much progress. Uh, he's been okay, but we've been keep waiting for this Hardman to turn into Tyreek Hill, and he's not going to turn into Tyreek Hill. It's like waiting to make, you know, trying to make fetch happen. Fetch isn't going to be... <laughs> It's not going to happen. There is someone out there like pumping their fist right now behind the podcast. Uh, so I think MBS is actually the sleeper here because his, I think, I believe his ADP is third, third in this receiving core mm-hmm. behind more and behind for certainly behind uh, Smith Schuster and behind more. Um, and I think he's probably the guy who is most likely to make a huge play. Uh, now he showed it in, Green Bay that it wasn't consistent, but there was just times where he and Rogers weren't on the same page. Um, but he was running six yards behind the defense, and Rogers misses him by three yards. And I, I, I just feel like he's better than what people are giving him credit for in terms of the progress that he made. Uh, you know, year two, three, four. Um, so I think he's a really nice fit in this offense. If what you're trying to do is replace, not you can't replace Tyree Kill with one player. So they realize that, and they're trying to do it multiple ways. Uh, Valdez Scantling can replace the deep threat, and maybe they're trying to use more and Juju Smith-Schuster to replace some of the shorter stuff. Um, but I think you know, if you're just looking at value right now, Val- Valdez Scantling is going to be a full-time player. He's got four three something speed at six foot four, and I think he's a very nice match for Mahomes when they do decide to throw deep. Do you think though he's someone who could average? six to eight targets per game since that's not the type of player he was in Green Bay. Like, do you think not only will they use him more like that, but can he be used like that? Because I, I it's a rhetorical question, right? Like, I genuinely don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem with MVS in Green Bay was that he was playing alongside Devontae Adams and there just wasn't enough targets there for anyone to come in and average six to eight targets consistently. So basically, when, with, with Green Bay, it was 
Rodgers is looking at Devontae Adams first at every drop back, basically, unless there's a place, you know, specifically designed for Robert Tunyon or Lazard or something, which is very rarely. Um, and then after that, it's like, okay, who's open? And it might be it might be uh, Lazard for this one game, or it might be Cobb for this other game, or it might be MVS is getting open deep, you know, four or five times. Um, it just wasn't a, they they were always giving him a deep shot or two. It just wasn't a consistent, as you mentioned, threat. But I think if you look at this roster and this receiving core compared to uh, Green Bay, there's nobody here that that is a Devonte Adams. I mean, you could say Travis Kelsey is. Um, you know, you're, he's going to see a lot of targets, but it's possible that Valdez Scantling could pressure Smith Schuster and be those two could be pretty close in targets. It depends on how much he develops in, within within the scope of this offense. Um, I, I just think that Valdez Scantling, from a value standpoint, is the standout right now. Like we're actually talking about, like, oh, is he is he going to be the number one receiver in this offense? Probably not. He might. He, I think there's a chance that he leads in receiving yards after Kelsey. Um, he's not, probably not going to out out catch Smith Schuster if Smith Schuster stays healthy. Um, but he's a he's he brings an aspect that Smith Schuster just doesn't, and that's the deep threat. So. You know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seeing the offseason reports and does, is he, sh- is he, uh, you know, shining in practice? Are they connecting him and Mahomes? Do they show a nice report? Because I think that'll go a long way, you know, to get him to that six. You know, averaging six targets a game for him would be pretty big because he's going to have so many air yards in each of those targets. I'm also glad you chose to mention his profile historically with Aaron Rodgers because today is the day I chose to die and bringing Aaron Rodgers' weekly ceiling to the table as a potential loser post-draft. Not only because they traded Devontae Adams pre-draft and prioritized defense with their two picks in the first round this year, but I'm also genuinely concerned about Christian Watson, who didn't play a single game out of 52 against FBS competition, finished with a career 30% contested catch rate at six foot four, and Romeo Dubs, who I was actually looking through Dane Brugler's post-draft grades in the athletic and mentioned that he even thinks Dubs could get beat out by seventh-round addition Samare Tare. And so I'm actually concerned about their skill set, Dubs and Watson's, like translating so quickly into year one in the NFL and perhaps needing too much development for Aaron Rodgers turns 39 in December and probably just doesn't have the patience for these type of players right now. Um, also, this build, all of this tells me that they're probably going to lean on a more run-heavy approach and try to play great defense. And to me, that could lead to more, to fewer, I should say, QB1 performances, which is huge since he spiked 10 of 16 last year and does not offer the rushing volume that could per- still perhaps get him there this upcoming year. What do you think about like Aaron Rodgers' outlook this season? Uh, well, I don't know off the top of my head what where he finished the last two seasons, but I think he was top three fantasy, top four fantasy for the for the year. He was a uh, sixth in fantasy points per game against the ninth easiest passing schedule last year. Okay, so because remember. For whatever reason, when he broke his toe, he became an even better player. Still not sure how that happened, but he was he was unstoppable. Well, he yeah he tends to uh, overcome adversity. He was yeah he was QB five last year, um, and then the year before, uh, just double checking that he was QB um, QB two. Uh, I think yes, if you lose Devonte Adams, arguably the best receiver in football. Uh, it's going, it's a setback for him. I'm very interested. It has to be looked at within context of where his ADP falls within his position. So I've heard, I 
you know, I watched the, uh, listened to the Yahoo fantasy uh, podcast the other day and they were all down on Rogers. They all had, I believe they all had Derek Carr ahead of him, uh, that he might be in the QB 10 to 15 range for them. Like to me that, that seems a little pessimistic in terms of what he's going to be able to do. It's just that, you know, he's a really good player. He's back-to-back MVP. Is he going to completely fall off uh, a cliff because they lost Devonte Adams? Um, you look at the eight games where he played without uh, Devonte Adams, and he actually averaged more fantasy points, 21.2, uh, than he did with Devonte Adams, 20.7 since the uh, 2016 season. So uh, he's capable of still producing at a very high level without Devonte Adams. I just think we're going to have a different offense where he's spreading the ball around and making all his reads uh, and doing more than just throw the ball to Devonte when you know, even if he's covered, because he knew that if he threw it to Devontae, he'd be in the right place. He's not going to get the ball intercepted, and Devontae's going to have a pretty good chance to catch the ball. But now it's going to be, okay, who's open? One, two, three, four. And then you brought up the, the rookies, and he does not have a history of working well with rookies. That doesn't mean that he can't or that he won't have to. This is a situation where if he doesn't throw the ball to Christian Watson, then it's going to be Alan Lazard, Randall Cobb, Amari Rogers, who he barely, barely threw to last year, and Robert Tunyon as the as the top four options. You know, maybe Sammy Watkins is an option there if he you know can stay healthy and, and stays on the roster. Frankly, but I think they're gonna he's gonna have to figure it out with Watson. And I think there's a lot of potential with Watson. He, I'm maybe a little bit more bullish on his year one with with Rogers. Uh, he did. I know there are big questions about his uh, level of competition. Uh, North Dakota State, but he did very well at the Senior Bowl. Uh, they, I believe the secondary there voted him the receiver uh, of, the, of the week. Uh, and he, like, I saw multiple scouts talking about him dominating those practices. And I watched some film of the practices, and he looks fine to me against NFL level, level competition. So um, I'm a little more bullish on that. Uh, you know, the, the, Matt Harmon did see some problems with his route running, but he also had some good some good routes that he ran well. And one of the ones he didn't particularly run well was the nine. And I think with his speed, that's going to work itself out. Uh, you know, four, three, something at six foot four. Uh, he'll figure that out. I think so. Uh, I'm a little more bullish. I don't know where I'm going to end up having him, but this is going to be more of a spread it around offense. I don't think that any of these receivers are going to go over a thousand yards necessarily that, you know, you're probably looking at a bunch of guys with 600 to 800 yards. Um, and I, but I think that Rogers and, you know, Matt LaFleur are going to figure it out and he's going to continue to produce at a QB one level. Uh, he, he's done it in the past without Adams and I think he'll be able to do it this year. So let's say you have a couple glasses of wine, like both of us tend to do from time to time and you dive into underdog and you draft Aaron Rodgers because you suddenly get even more bullish on him. How do you rank your stacking options for anyone listening right now who may have Aaron Rodgers? That's a good question. Uh, because they're all, that, like you mentioned, they're all up for grabs except for Aaron Jones. But the receivers, you could really prioritize them if you want to and get them late. Yeah, I mean, I think the safest player is Lazard. Uh, he just still an ascending player, fairly young, has his trust. Um, I don't know that you're going to want to, you know, go out and chase Randall Cobb at his age uh, with Amari Rogers sort of nipping at his heels. I think Watson is a good, would be a good if you really want to take some chances and you know bet on him having a good year. Um, and Tunyon is ch- dirt cheap at tight end. And he didn't like, this was a good draft for him. They didn't get a tight end, you know, early or anything like they were, they were projected mocked to have Trey McBride as possibly a, an addition and he, he didn't arrive. So, I mean, I think 
I would probably prioritize prioritize them that way. Probably um, Lazar, Tunyon, and uh, Watson in that order because Watson probably will be. Well, I don't know. I, I'm interested to see if if Lazard or Watson ends up being drafted first. Uh, probably Lazard, probably Lazard, but I'm not sure. So I'm interested to see how that kind of shakes out. I'd probably take the second of those two, whoever's still on the board, and then Tunyon. Even for as bearish as I am on Watson, I do think he's a good late round best ball option because if he does develop like the player we think he can, I think he's a better splash player individual and that will leave headaches and redraft would be just fine in best ball where you can just allow the scoring to dictate when he starts. So I do, I am totally fine with stacking him in best ball with Aaron Rodgers. If you get there, another losing option from the draft though, and this goes without saying is the Patriots backfield because as we know, James White averaged six and a half targets, 14 fantasy points in the only two games. He started with Mac Jones last year prior to injury. Damian Harris led the team with 14 carries inside the five. Ramondre Stevenson spelled Harris over the second half of the season when both practically became unstartable options because they just cannibalized one another. And now we had Pierre Strong with respectful capital on day three because he offers explosiveness that none of the others do. And having 76 of his 267 career carries in college gain 15 plus yards. So what are your thoughts? Maybe not just even on this backfield and how to approach them, but also with the Patriots offense, they did add Ty- Tyquan Thornton in the second round, who is getting knocked for the draft capital they used. And I think that's appropriate response, but also like Kadarius Tony last year, I understand it's not first round capital, but like Kadarius Tony, he does. He did show talent in college. Thornton did, and is high draft capital essentially. So, like, he's falling to the end of rookie drafts when I think he's a very good pick as like a later option. Are you are you suggesting that he's a good pick for this year or no. for dynasty? Dynasty. For dynasty. Yeah. Okay, so I feel sort of the same way. Um, they they have a lot of experienced receivers there and i don't think that the patriots have much of a reputation for just throwing rookies into the fire unless they absolutely have to um so you know jacoby myers is, is decent Devontae parker is really good with a contested catch ball he gives him some size in the red zone kedrick Bourne, uh i believe led the team in uh yards per route run highly efficient player on the targets that he got uh and nelson aguilar is sort of playing that was playing that role that I think they want Thornton to kind of get into the deep, the deep ball role. So it's a, it's an ugly receiving court. It's going to be very difficult to project week to week. These guys are going to rotate a lot because they do have a lot of veterans and if they, they do want to get Thornton involved, it's going to get even uglier. Um, I think at the running back position is where the headaches really get like, we were expecting a headache at receiver, right? But we weren't necessarily expecting a headache at running back I, as much as we were going to see. I mean, Damian Harris was RB 13 last year and half PPR uh, I think he was headed towards another pretty good season. Um, probably still is, but Stevenson may, maybe nipping at his heels. Uh, James White, uh, Pierre Strong, as you mentioned. Um, it looks like we're getting back to the Patriots rotation, and maybe they find roles that they like for each one of these guys, and they all play. I'm, I'm a little less bullish on on Harris, and he even he was like, you know, you, you like him in standard formats. He's going to score a lot of touchdowns, but you can't count on him to have that floor that you you want with that receiving floor that you want. Um, and with Stevenson there sort of nipping at his heels, it, it makes it a little bit dicey. So I think that's a little bit – I think we're back to the Patriots running game being kind of a headache. And remember, Damon Harris, RB13, as you mentioned, with double-digit touchdowns. Like, think about the hoops he has to climb in order to get there again. So that's what makes it so tough. 
And everyone usually like in the off season, a lot of people think like, oh, well, like one of these backs will play so well, they grow into a three down role. But as we know, we have, we have two decades literally of experience underneath Bill Belichick where that doesn't happen. Your weakness does not touch that field. Only your strength plays on that field. Otherwise you get taken off. That's it. And so there is no hope for Damian Harris, like emerging as a pass catching option, especially if we expect James White to come back. James White will be my pick a la James Cook in the later rounds of best ball drafts where you go zero RB because I think the receptions will help us get there. But overall, that's kind of where it stops for me, especially as you mentioned, the voidable contracts the Patriots really have after this year because like Nelson Aguilar, uh, Kendrick Bourne probably won't be on the roster after this year, quite honestly. Some more. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to add that uh, Hunter Henry is probably the safest player. <laughs> if you just like who's who's who plays a position that you could actually get starter numbers out of them, it's probably going to be Hunter Henry. Uh, he, he did emerge over John Smith. John Smith didn't play well. They basically stopped throwing to him, and Hunt Henry emerged as that uh, number one tight end for them. And I think he's probably in line for another t- uh, tight end one season. And even then, remember, he had nine touchdowns on 50 catches. Like he, uh, and that was from week five on. Like he didn't score in the first month of the season. So he went just on like a, a torrential, unsustainable tear, which is what I keep coming back to when I almost click the button. I'm like, eh, can he do that again? But also, they have no one else that could do that. So maybe he can do that again. Another loser from post draft was all those Falcons receivers that thought they were going to be the number one for Marcus Mariota because I'm sure Olamide Zacchaeus, Auden Tate, Demir Bird, Frank Darby all called their parents afterwards before the draft thinking, now's my chance, Mom. And nope, Drake London, number eight overall, going to step in as the team's number one wide receiver. Is this as easy as Drake London, Kyle Pitts, and Cordero Patterson? It looks like it. Uh, you know, those other guys are going to get something. There's going to be a rotation there at wide receiver two, three, four. Uh, but this whole offense appears like it's going to go through Pitts in London, and they both should see 110, 120-plus targets per- fairly easily. And then if Patterson is used the way he was early last year, then he's going to be a value. Like he's, It seems like he's slipping in drafts, too. Like they don't. I think drafters are looking at what happened to him late last year and thinking that's going to translate um, to this year. But, you know, they just cut Mike Davis. They... Um, they did draft uh, L- LG year. Uh, so he, he's sort of a Mike Davis replacement, I would think. Damian Williams is there. I believe he came over in free agency. He's a pretty versatile back, but sort of a journeyman at this point. Um, I think the, the interesting question is Drake London with Marcus Mariota or Traylon Burks with uh, Ryan Tannehill. I mean, they're probably going to see similar uh, target shares and, and total targets, but which player is going to end up with more fantasy points? I think Tannehill is the better passer. But Mariota might be capable and bounce back and give us, you know, a, a career resurgence and and really deliver the ball or London and Pitts in decent manner. They're gonna they're gonna be moving the ball, you know, Dinkin and Duncan, I think, down the field. So um it, that's sort of like I'm wondering who's gonna see the most targets between those two. Those two likely gonna lead they look like right now the jumping off the page is as rookies that could see 120 plus targets fairly easily. And you asked the question, I think I still lean trail on Burks because, in my opinion, his targets will be easier to catch, whereas Drake London like was awesome last year at USC. But as we talked about on our live recap, 11 catches per game, 15 targets per game. Like I don't think that translates over that workload so much. I think it's still going to be a lot of deep targets from Marcus Mariota, where at least we get accurate targets underneath if the Titans use Traylon Burks as such for like shallow crossing routes, as they did for A.J. Brown. And I do think that's why... 
whether I whether I believe it's right or wrong, and I think they're wrong on it, but I think they think wide receivers are expendable in their offense because they could have other athletic guys run crossing routes. They never jammed A.J. Brown targets. They never schemed for A.J. Brown. They made him depend on his own athleticism, which is what I think they see in Traylon Burks as well. So I bet they use him similarly. Having said that, he does have the athleticism to see with those easier targets. So that's where I kind of fall with Traylon Burks right now. Someone asked me that question over the weekend, and I do think he's the number one redraft receiver right now. Interesting, because I think the consensus is, and I don't think it's a solid consensus, but I think the consensus is that Drake London is in the best situation, even though his quarterback situation isn't great. It's a fun argument to have because they're both fun yeah, well, and talented wide receivers. The other thing is Robert Woods. So we don't know where he's if he's if he's back, that changes the the, the the equation a little bit. And also they traded for Robert Woods, yes, to excel in the passing game, but also he's he's like PFF's best highest graded run blocking wide receiver. Run blocker, like yeah. They know what he does best, which is why they traded for him, which is interesting. And finally, last loser of the weekend post draft. The belief that New Orleans understood how to use their draft capital. I'm going to tee it up to you to speak on Chris Olave in a positive manner. I'll do the dunking and allow my mentions to burn from Saints fans because before the draft even started, Mickey Loomis traded next year's first pick and 2024 second rounder to get another first round pick this year, which left them with 16 and 19 on Thursday night. But the Saints then moved pick number 16 and a third and fourth round pick to move up to 11 jump five spots with Washington for Chris Olave, which I don't think should be rewarded no matter what I think of Olave, because that entails too much hubris and overconfidence to not only project wide receivers to the next level, but Ohio state wide receivers, which we always know has have been the most impossible to project translating from college. But with that team building er out of the way now, I would like to get your thoughts on Chris Olave, another Matt Harmon guy, since it's apparently a prerequisite that we mention him every single rookie. Yeah, I mean, the, Matt Harmon's research just really helps inform like where these guys are. I, I don't watch a lot of college football, so I'm not sitting there judging these receivers based on my film work or what me, you know, sitting on the couch on Saturdays watching them play. So having somebody who is used to looking at receivers and judging them. Uh, and then usually being pretty accurate. Like I think he had one miss last year, and that was Ter Terrace Marshall. He he rated really well, and who just didn't have a very good rookie year. It doesn't mean he's not going to eventually succeed. But Olave was the best separator, and by a wide margin, he said uh, this in this year's class. So that's you know I put a lot of stock into that, and I think he, you know we just talked about Burks and we just talked about um, London, and I think. Olave is sort of the dark horse to perhaps lead the, the, this rookie class in receiving. And it sort of depends on what happens with Michael Thomas and, and what they want to do with Jameis Winston at quarterback. Are they going to make him a 20 to 25 pass attempt game manager, or are they going to, you know, utilize his skills a little bit more as a passer and, you know, allow him to throw the ball 30 to 40 times a game. Uh, I think that so those, those are, those are questions that remain to be answered, but Olave's got the talent. I think I love the idea of him playing in the dome uh, I think he's going to be a very tough cover. It'll, I mean, I think there's a chance that we end up with like a Marvin Harrison in playing in Indy with, with Peyton Manning. And it was, he was impossible to cover indoors. Um, so 
Olave is, is, is going to be ranked fairly high, I believe, projected fairly high, given the, the nature of this receiving core and how much they spent to move up to get him, which you look at as, you know, as a negative because of what they did from a real-world standpoint. But from my standpoint, fantasy, I don't care as much as I'm reading into it. Like, oh, they really like him, and they really want to use him. And it appears that he's in line for this number two receiving role at least. So where does Michael Thomas fit into all this after a year off he sh- he's good enough to come back and be the receiver number number one receiver and number one target in this offense but um where is he at mentally how does he feel about the organization etc and where is he at physically uh and then at tight end they've got kind of I mean, they don't have a you know they had troutman Jawan johnson at tight end there's no there's no and then alvin kamara is the wild card here because he's got some legal issues and if he's suspended that's another six to eight targets that are up for grabs and they're not all going to go to the backup running backs. So there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of moving parts here. I mean, I like, I like the landing spot. I think he's landed with a pretty good quarterback who can support number of fantasy receivers when he's allowed to. And I think Olave has a talent uh, to produce and especially in this situation indoors and then given the nature of this uh, receiving uh, depth chart, I mean, Marquez Callaway was okay last year. Traquan Smith's okay, but there's nobody here that really scares me at the three, four, five spot um, in terms of infringing on his uh, playing time. That note on Olave being able to separate the next level with ease, I think is the most important one to keep in mind because when you read guys like Dane Brugler, Lance Zierlein, they even said at 187 pounds, that was going to be his major question mark at the next level, was using that 439 speed, and if he could use that to then separate over the top. But if we believe he can, that's tremendous since he did produce in college. Justin, thinking about the immense amount of talent to ever walk through Ohio State, not only that, but the talent he played around as well, even as much as Jameson Williams in 2019, right? And then to think that Olavi was the one out of all those guys to lead with a to leave with a program high 35 touchdowns and lead Ohio State in receiving touchdowns in three consecutive years. It wasn't a one-year fluke, right? He did it every single year he was there. Like that's super impressive. If you can tell me then also he's able to separate and get yards that way at the next level. That's I like that note a lot. But with that, that wraps up the top 10 developments post-draft for us. What do you have on the site for everyone at 444.com coming out? Uh, I've just got my 15 uh, impact rookies article that's up. And then next week, hopefully next week, I'll have the uh, the first iteration of the 2022 projections uh, for everybody. Uh, it, this is like the busiest time of my spring is getting post-draft to getting those projections out. Um, so it was nice to come out of the rankings cave and talk to you for an hour. Uh, but that's the next thing on my docket is next, is next week. Uh, those projections will be released to the, possibly early the following week. Also, while you were on the... In the rankings cave, I will tell everyone that TJ Hernandez has all of his best ball guides out on the site to read right now while you are digging into the best ball million three tournament. Also, tons of player profiles from Jennifer Eakins, Chris Allen, so many people doing great work behind the scenes. And next week, as you mentioned, very big because you are shooting for your first run of projections and rankings. I will have my best ball tiers on the site as well as we have a lot of other things to default to exploit default ADP on the site as well. So tons of things coming out in the next couple of weeks in particular. Stay tuned until then, you know, we'll be back this time next Thursday. See you. Next.